When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. friends. Glad to have you back. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and welcome to the war. Today we begin two weeks of time spent in the war chapters. We have more pages to cover in the next two weeks than any other weeks of scripture study in Come Follow Me. So buckle up. Those of you who have gotten used to the way I teach, which in these videos has basically been verse by verse study and explanation, may have been wondering just how many episodes the war chapters would take. Well, whether this comes as a relief or a disappointment, there's no way to be able to go verse by verse through these war chapters. At least not in two weeks worth of Come Follow Me study. So we're going to have to shift gears a little bit. You've probably heard the analogy used in the past that sometimes scripture study is water skiing, sometimes it's snorkeling, and sometimes it's scuba diving. The nice thing about water skiing is you can cover the whole lake. You see the big picture that way. But you don't get very deep beneath the surface. Snorkeling is better for that. Once your head goes below the surface, you start seeing things you never would have imagined. The third level, the deepest, is the scuba dive. You hardly cover any space at all. But what you lack in breadth, you make up for in depth. And there's incredible value in finding a verse, a phrase, a word even, that draws you down into intense study. Often our scripture study goes in that order. We try to get the big picture through the water skiing approach. But as we're covering the territory, we start noticing areas, I'll bet there's more to see here. And so we slow down and start to snorkel. And during the snorkeling phase, if we see a sunken ship or some especially promising piece of coral reef, then we dive and start exploring things word by word, footnote by cross-reference. You can spend hours on a single verse that way. Today and next week with the war chapters, having to cover so much historical material, we're kind of forced to spend a lot of our time water skiing and then dropping anchor in a few particularly promising areas to be able to snorkel and dive a little deeper. But I would encourage you in your own personal scripture study, whenever something catches your eye or you feel a little tug from the Holy Ghost to stop and spend some time here, then do it. Slow down. Don't worry about getting to the end of the chapter and explore. You'll be amazed at some of the things that the Spirit wants to show you in the words. So with that, let's dive into the war. War is something that throughout history has tended to define generations. Even if you take the history of the United States alone, it almost seems that every generation has their coming of age experience revolving around some kind of war. Whether it was the French and Indian War, where a young George Washington cut his teeth, or the Revolutionary War for the generation that followed, the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, it almost seems to go generation by generation. In the 20th century, same kind of thing. Soldiers who fought in World War I then watched their sons go off to war in World War II, followed closely by the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and even with a relative lull in open conflict, the Cold War defined the childhood of many of us. And then, of course, ever since 2001, the War on Terror 
has been our reality. In fact, I remember on that September 11, 2001, just feeling like the world had changed. And that scriptural phrase, wars and rumors of wars, took on new meaning. A war seems to be obvious. You know who the enemy is. You know who you're fighting and where you're fighting and hopefully why you're fighting. But compare that to a rumor of wars. What's a rumor? It's hard to pin down. You don't exactly know how it started or where it's going to go from here. That seemed to describe terrorism pretty well. And I still remember at the October 2001 General Conference, a month after the attacks, President Hinckley stood up to speak and at the beginning of his message said he had just been handed a note that the bombing of Iraq had begun. There was a tenseness there. And I was so grateful to be sitting before a prophet, ready to hear his words. And he talked about the war, obviously. But it was interesting that he connected it to the war in heaven and reminded us that this kind of battle, good versus evil, has been going on since before the world began. And though the physical nature of the present conflict was on everyone's mind, it was the spiritual realities behind it that seemed to be the prophet's focus. As he said in that talk, our safety lies in our repentance. It wasn't about digging bunkers or stockpiling ammunition. It was turning to the Lord, offering him our sins and our souls, and becoming not good soldiers, but good disciples. I was really struck by that. Our safety lies in our repentance. Our security lies in obedience to the commandments of God. Shifting from the physical or political to the spiritual is exactly what I think Mormon would have us do as he narrates our way through the war chapters. I think he would agree with what Paul said in Ephesians in introducing his passage about the armor of God. He said, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is a spiritual war that we are waging. We have to learn to wage and win the war that really matters, the war within each of us, the one that's supposed to end in a victory that's actually an unconditional surrender to our Savior Jesus Christ. I don't think Mormon was abridging the record and leaving out 99%, right? That was his constant complaint. I can't include only the 100th part. I don't think he kept all this war in here just because he was a general himself and he really liked to study his military history. I think seeing our day and knowing the spiritual battles that we would constantly be fighting, we need to know the principles of winning wars that can be found in the stories that he provides us. So my prayer for the next two weeks of study is that we learn the kinds of spiritual lessons that we can find embedded in these historical chapters that deal so literally with war. And for our purposes today, we're going to be jumping all over this first half of the war chapters. I'm less concerned with specific chronology here. There's not going to be a quiz at the end. And there's no angel handing out number two pencils and scantrons on Judgment Day to see if we can remember if Morianton's rebellion was part of the first Amalekite war or the second. Or to plot on a map the general locations of the city of Nephi Ha compared to the city of Mulek. Far more important will be a test that requires no number two pencil. That test is called life, and it's an open book test. And I pray that opening this book today will help us see lessons that we can take with us as we fight the war of the spirit that matters most. Remember Nephi's statement way back in 1 Nephi 19, that if you want the scriptures to be profitable, if you want to learn anything, 
then you have to liken these words unto yourself. And nowhere is that more applicable than in these war chapters. They're more relevant than we sometimes realize. So rather than go chronologically from Alma 43 through Alma 52 today, we'll do a little of that. But more than that, we will be jumping around, turning pages in both directions, trying to understand principles about what we're up against and what we can do to overcome those kinds of challenges. I took a similar approach in Alma 30 when we were talking about Korahor. Instead of chronologically going through each of the three rounds of false doctrine that he engages in, we just kind of mushed them together and tried to see a big picture of what is he doing to oppose the work of God? And what are the righteous, whoever they happen to be at any given moment, what are they doing in response? We'll do something similar here. And the first thing I think we need to understand about these war chapters is the fact that the Lord's work is still going on in spite of the sounds of battles that these disciples could hear all around them. In fact, look at how Mormon begins the record. Alma 43.1 Now it came to pass that the sons of Alma did go forth among the people, not to fight, not to lead armies, though we will see Helaman doing just that next week, but rather to declare the word unto the people. And Alma also himself could not rest, and he also went forth. Doesn't that sound like Alma? Finishes one mission at the end of one year and begins the next one as soon as the new year begins. Gets stopped in Ammonihah and the angel says, no, give it another shot. He turns right around and, and runs back. A restless Alma, that's him to a T. And then in verse 2, Mormon says, now we shall say no more concerning their preaching. He has another topic he wants to emphasize from here. But we need to keep in mind that in the background, preaching is going on all along. He's just not going to record it all. Here he says that it's enough to say that they preach the word and the truth according to the spirit of prophecy and revelation. That's the pair that always seems to come together. Testimony of Jesus, that's prophecy. Power of the Holy Ghost, that's revelation. And they preached after the holy order of God by which they were called. So that's priesthood. But in verse 3, now I return to an account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So please try to keep that in mind as we go through these chapters. It's really easy to lose sight of the spiritual things that are occurring during this time period because we're so consumed by the wars that are taking place. But the kingdom of God moves on, even if the marching of armies seems to occupy the evening news. Even during times of war, the church continues to pursue its spiritual mandate. I love one of the last talks that Elder Bruce R. McConkie gave, where he compared the church to a caravan and finished his talk with this statement. Is there a ravine to cross, a miry mud hole to pull through, a steep grade to climb? So be it. The oxen are strong and the teamsters wise. The caravan moves on. Are there storms that rage along the way, floods that wash away the bridges, deserts to cross, rivers to ford? Such is life in this fallen sphere. The caravan moves on. Ahead is the celestial city, the eternal Zion of our God, where all who maintain their position in the caravan shall find food and drink and rest. Thank God that the caravan moves on. If you have eyes to see, you will watch the caravan move on through these chapters. Even as Captain Moroni is marshalling the troops, Helaman and others are organizing the righteous. Moroni, leading soldiers. Helaman, leading disciples, both groups trying to win the war that was pressing most heavily upon them. And whether politically or religiously, 
Their goals are amazingly similar, trying to preserve freedom, defend agency, and put down wickedness wherever it might be found. I think one of the most obvious places where the church pops back up almost as a reminder that, yes, even though these are war chapters, spiritual things are taking place, is in chapter 45. There's a brief lull here between the Zoramite War and the first Amalekite War. And chapter 45 begins with Alma passing the baton officially down to Helaman. He had told him he would back in Alma 37, but here he actually hands over the plates because by the end of this chapter, Alma is never heard of again. I love that this kind of final interview before the official passing of the plates consists only of three questions, really. Verse 2, the question has to do with the records themselves. Believest thou the words which I spake unto thee concerning those records which have been kept? In other words, our conversation back in chapter 37, do you get that? Do you understand the importance of these things? And do you believe those things? That if you keep these words sacred, God will preserve them for a wise purpose in him. Are we on the same page there? And Helaman says, yes. Question number two is in verse four. Believest thou in Jesus Christ who shall come? That's the most important thing here. That's the reason why we're preserving these plates. I'm less concerned about your testimony of any other appendage, any sub-principle, but do you believe in Christ? And Helaman does. So with that in mind, the third question, verse six, will ye keep my commandments? That is, will you obey? If faith without works is dead, then your testimony without a willingness to act upon it doesn't have much life in it either. Will you do that? And Helaman responds, yea, I will keep thy commandments with all my heart. Alma blesses him for that in verse eight. And then from verse nine through 14, Alma prophesies. In fact, it's one of those reveal versus conceal kinds of situations that we saw back in chapter 37. I need you to know something, son. I'm going to reveal to you what God revealed to me, but I want you to conceal it from the people until this prophecy is actually fulfilled because it's bad news. It's the eventual destruction, extinction of the Nephite nation. Verse 10, this people, the Nephites, according to the spirit of revelation, which is in me, in 400 years from the time that Jesus Christ shall manifest himself unto them, shall dwindle in unbelief. Now, we've seen a lot of that off and on, but this isn't just a passing disease, spiritual weakness. This one's fatal. In verse 11, he says that the wars and pestilences and famine and bloodshed that they'll experience will eventually result in the people of Nephi becoming extinct. Verse 12, they shall dwindle in unbelief. They'll fall into the works of darkness and lasciviousness and all manner of iniquities. And because they sin against so great light and knowledge, Remember, he who sins against the greater light receives the greater condemnation. Their condemnation will be a complete annihilation. And it's not just a physical war that the Nephites enemies will win. It's a spiritual one. In verse 13, many of those who are now numbered among the people of Nephi, at least their seed, shall no more be numbered among the people of Nephi at all. We're seeing apostasy and not just annihilation. Verse 14, anyone who isn't destroyed in that great and dreadful day shall be numbered among the Lamanites and shall become like unto them. All save it be a few who shall be called the disciples of the Lord and them shall the Lamanites pursue even until they shall become extinct. And because of iniquity, this prophecy shall be fulfilled. Talk about a heavy burden 
for this father to pass on to his son. Similar to what Nephi saw at the very beginning of the book. But what did Nephi do? He comes down from the mountain. And the first people he meets are Laman and Lemuel. And against hope, yet believing in hope, to borrow Paul's phrase, Nephi begins teaching and explaining doctrine and truth to his brothers. Even though he sees the future of what his brother's posterity will do to his own. I think we see a similar thing here. Because what does Helaman do from this point forward? He doesn't just throw up his hands or throw in the towel and say, well, it's a lost cause, isn't it? Why even try? No, he tries. Against hope, he believes in hope. It's like Mormon himself, who was living in that moment of lost cause, and yet says to his son, we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay. Win or lose, in other words. We have work to do. And while this particular war may go in the wrong direction, we can win individual battles. The one waging within our own heart, the most important of all. Now, thankfully for us, we will eventually win the ultimate battle. Christ will return to reign personally upon the earth. But in the meantime, as the wars rage, we have work to do also. The point I'm trying to make here, and I think that Alma is making, and that Mormon is making in arranging these materials, is that all these physical wars are taking place against the backdrop of spiritual battles of far greater significance, eternal consequences, more than just geopolitical ones. So Helaman, keep in mind the big picture and serve God even while you're serving your country. In 15, Alma blesses his sons. In 16 and 17, he blesses the church. All those who should stand fast in the faith from that time henceforth, that is something we'll see throughout these chapters as well. The danger of losing faith and not standing fast. After all, who was the Nephites' primary enemy? We want to say Lamanites, right? But technically, no. It was former Nephites. We'll see that over and over again in the material we'll study today. Alma then departs out of the land and is never heard of again, leaving the people to wonder if his final resting place was no resting place at all. Again, we learned that he doesn't like to rest much, right? Or rather, was he caught up to heaven, as was Moses, with no burial place known? And what does Helaman do in the aftermath? Verse 20, Helaman went forth among the people to declare the word unto them. And here's the reason why, 21. Again, this sets the stage of these war chapters powerfully. For behold, because of their wars with the Lamanites and the many little dissensions and disturbances which had been among the people. That's the bigger problem, actually. Wars with the Lamanites is one thing. But dissensions and disturbances among our own people, even if they start little, that's the source of the greatest problems that the Nephite nation will face. So up against those obstacles, it became expedient that the word of God should be declared among them, yea, and that a regulation should be made throughout the church. This is Helaman doing exactly what his grandfather and father have done for generations before him. Therefore, verse 22, Helaman and his brethren went forth to establish the church again in all the land. Remember, this is right in the thick of the war chapters and continues throughout them all. The church's spiritual mandate is not put on hold during times of political unrest. They go forth to establish the church in all the land, in every city, throughout all the land, which was possessed by the people of Nephi, 
And it came to pass that they did appoint priests and teachers throughout all the land, over all the churches. What were they up against? These last two verses. After Helaman and his brethren had appointed priests and teachers over the churches, there arose a dissension among them, and they would not give heed to the words of Helaman and his brethren. Again, it's internal problems, far more than external ones, that caused the problems the Nephite nation will face. They grew proud, being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceedingly great riches. Therefore they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to their words to walk uprightly before God. That verse, seemingly out of place in the middle of these war chapters, actually helps define what's causing these wars that we'll see. Pride and materialism is what is drawing or driving people out of the church. Their own wickedness. And once they turn on the prophets, once they refuse to give heed to their words, it seems to be only a matter of time until they join and end up leading the Lamanites in opposition to their former friends and colleagues among the Nephites. This is a great example of what we saw with Mormon's help at the end of Alma 24, after the first group of anti-Nephi-Lehi's are slain, and a massive group of their attackers ends up converting to the faith. But the fact they were all Lamanites, with no Amalekites or Amulonites converting at all, this was Mormon's takeaway at that time, and we'll see it define these war chapters today. Thus we can plainly discern that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened than if they'd never known it. Their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. It is apostates more than enemies that cause the problems that the church will face. Joseph Smith himself once said, I could live forever if it weren't for a right-hand Brutus. It's amazing what a bad rap the Lamanites seem to get throughout the Book of Mormon. But it's seldom the Lamanites that are causing problems. It's Nephites, ex-Nephites, as they would probably prefer to be called, who have left the church but cannot leave the church alone, as we often say. Now, in the chapters we'll be studying, to kind of give more big picture, there are four main bad guys, as my kids would probably call them. We're going to meet Zarahemna, Amalickiah, and his brother Amaron, but those seem to be two peas in a pod. Morianton, we'll meet briefly, and the Kingmen, more of a group of bad guys. And like I just said, all of these bad guys used to be Nephites, or still were when they come onto the scene. And overall, Pay attention to these common threads. We'll meet each person or group, briefly at least, but we won't have time to go verse by verse through all of them. So here's some big picture. Their defining actions are opposition, that's Zarahemna and Amalickiah, abandonment, that's Morianton, and apathy, that's the kingmen. And think about some of the challenges the church is facing right now, or that perhaps you're facing in your own family or circle of friends. Opposition? People who are fighting against the church. Abandonment. People who just leave it behind. And apathy. People that stick around but don't do anything with the truths that should be affecting their lives. Well, those are the defining actions. How about some of the defining sins? As you read through these chapters, keep an eye out for them. I notice things like hatred, ambition, greed, anger, stubbornness, abusiveness, laziness, vengefulness, rashness, callousness, 
selfishness, really, from start to finish. But that's what we're up against. Examples of the spiritual wickedness in high places that Paul warned us about. We've seen defining actions and defining sins. How about their defining objectives? I think those can be boiled down to two. Seeking for power and seeking for possessions. Isn't that what we saw in that last verse in Alma 45? Pride. There's this seeking for power, this vain ambition, and their hearts are set upon riches. There's this greed, this desire for prosperity. And what's interesting to me is that in those two, you see both the political and the economic aspect of life. The political, that's this quest for authority and power, right? This pride. The economic, that's setting hearts upon riches, seeking the vain things of the world. In the book of Revelation, when John tries to depict what we're up against in Babylon, he uses the beast to describe the political aspect, and he uses the merchant city to depict the economic aspect. And both of those aspects attack religion, because religion is a rival authority, leading people to submit themselves to God rather than submit themselves to some earthly power, and it's a rival economy one of selflessness instead of selfishness. So keep an eye out in these chapters, and more importantly, in our own lives and circumstances, those that seek for power or possessions, or times in our lives where we start to become a little prideful or power hungry, or possessive and materialistic. Now the first group we'll see, go back to chapter 43, and meet them in verse 4. Verse 5, actually, you meet their leader. His name is Zarahemna. And he's a leader of the Zoramites. But in verse 4, notice this foreboding phrase. Behold, it came to pass that the Zoramites became Lamanites. That's what we need to know here. Like I said earlier, the righteous converted Zoramites become Nephites. The unconverted Zoramites become Lamanites. And Zarahemna is the leader of the wicked. Now the Zoramites were only one group that had become Lamanites. The other is mentioned in verse 6, the Amalekites. Now, we met them earlier. They were most likely the Amlicites that we met back in Alma chapter 3, where priestcraft and popularity and prosperity were their driving motivations. That hasn't changed by now either. But what we learn about them in verse 6 is essential. As the Amalekites were of a more wicked and murderous disposition than the Lamanites were, in and of themselves, therefore Zarahemna appointed chief captains over the Lamanites, and they were all Amalekites and Zoramites. So like I said before, the war chapters do less to describe the Lamanites as the enemy of the church and more to help us understand the influence of apostates, former members who are now fighting against the faith they once held dear. Of course, there are people who attack the church that have never been a part of it. But in our day, it seems to be the most successful, the most influential, are former Latter-day Saints. They are leading the charge. And in verse 7, Zarahemna puts them in charge so that he might preserve their hatred towards the Nephites, that he might bring them into subjection to the accomplishment of his designs. And what were those designs? Verse 8, to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. Who cares? Well, he did, and it wasn't so much that he cared about Lamanites overcoming Nephites. It's that he simply wanted to usurp great power over them, the Lamanites, so that he could gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. I don't think he really cared much in and of himself of the Nephite-Lamanite rivalry. He sees an opportunity here. 
I'll use their long-standing hatred of one another to try to usurp power over both groups. That same design is reiterated on the next page in verse 29 where the leader of the Nephites, Captain Moroni, knows the intention of the Lamanites as compelled by their wicked leader Zarahemna. It was their intention to destroy their brethren or to subject them and bring them into bondage that they might establish a kingdom unto themselves over all the land with you-know-who on the throne. So, so far, the main thing we need to know is that what the Nephites are up against are not necessarily the church's enemies, but rather the church's apostates who first join and then quickly lead the opposition. That is what we're up against in our day. Former members now fighting against the faith. As a missionary, I always thought it was fascinating whenever somebody would say, oh, I don't need a Book of Mormon. I already have a Bible. That's all I need. And I thought, wow. For one who doesn't believe in the Book of Mormon, you did an amazing job of quoting it and fulfilling it. Remember that verse in 2 Nephi 29, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible. Well, in another way, Alma 43 is another example of people who do not believe in the Book of Mormon fulfilling it. Because what we see in these war chapters is exactly what we're seeing in our day. I was fascinated at one point, there was a very high-profile excommunication made all the more high-profile by the person being excommunicated. He wanted everyone to know why he was leaving the church. So there was a press conference of sorts, almost a, a live broadcast of these proceedings. And I remember reading some of the reports of this, including the comments section. It can be dangerous. It's like navigating a minefield sometimes. But I do try to remain aware of what's taking place within those circles. And my favorite comment was somebody who evidently had left the church himself, but said, quit trying to act like a prophet to those of us who don't believe in prophets anymore. And I just kind of laughed to myself thinking, wow, that is kind of what takes place. You've gathered a following. You want that following to grow. The popularity has grown a little intoxicating. So having left the church, Zarahemna, you want to gather adherents so that you can lead them in hopes of leading even others. It's exactly what you're seeing here. And remember these defining words. He was trying to preserve hatred. He was trying to usurp great power over the Lamanites and to gain great power over the Nephites. These are the goals we'll keep seeing throughout. The second bad guy we meet is Amalickiah, later to be replaced by his brother Amaron. We'll spend more time with him next week. But look for him in chapter 46. In verse 1, Helaman and his brethren have been preaching, but many would not hearken to their words, and so they gathered together against their brethren. Verse 2, they're exceedingly wroth. They want to slay them. Verse 3, a leader emerges among them who is a large and strong man. His name was Amalickiah. Large and strong. Sounds a lot like Nehor. Some form of charisma that will attract people to your cause. In verse 4, we learn this about Amalickiah. He was desirous to be a king. It's interesting to see the indefinite article there. He didn't desire to be king or the king. Just a king. I don't care who I lead. I just want to be in charge of something. Talk about not caring about any particular cause other than his own. Self-aggrandizement personal ambition. It's like politicians who flip-flop from one party to the other or anything in between just in hopes of getting in a nomination so that they can become something. I care very little for party or platform. All I want is power. I want to be in charge of something. I want to be a king. And we see that here. When he's unsuccessful in becoming a king over the Nephites, 
he then tries to become a king over the Lamanites. And he does succeed in that one. I just want to rule. And notice who's with him. Verse 4, the people who were wroth were also desirous that he should be their king. They were going to fall for it. Why? They were the greater part of them, the lower judges of the land. And they were seeking for power. If I can hitch my wagon to a star, so to speak, if he's on the climb, then he'll help me ascend as well. Talk about ambitious people using one another for personal gain. Verse 5, they had been led by the flatteries of Amalekiah that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. So again, we see this lust for power driving the things that are going on here. And the importance here of flattering words. You see that so often with antichrists or opponents of the truth. Flattery. I'm going to say things that you want to hear. Things especially pleasing to the natural man. In verse 6, they were led away by Amalekiah to dissensions. So again, we start to see this rift open up among church members, notwithstanding the preaching of Helaman and his brethren, yea, notwithstanding their exceedingly great care over the church, for they were high priests over the church. These church leaders were doing everything they could, but dissension was causing problems. Verse 7, many in the church believed in the flattering words of Amalekiah, so they dissented from the church as well. And thus were the affairs of the people of Nephi exceedingly precarious and dangerous. And so it is with us. Several times a week, I get an email or a text or an instant message about someone who's feeling attacked by some former member of the church. Former believers who are planting seeds of doubt, sowing tares in an attempt to choke out the wheat. Are you seeing the relevance here? Verse 8 Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God. Yea, how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. Verse 9, we also see the great wickedness that one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. There's no need to name names in our present circumstance. The flavor of the weak seems to rotate generation by generation. But it is amazing to see what one person can do, especially as they begin gathering a following, teaching untruths or half-truths to coax people away from the iron rod. Verse 10, we see that Amalickiah, because he was a man of cunning device and a man of many flattering words, that he led away the hearts of many people to do wickedly, yea, to seek to destroy the church of God and to destroy the foundation of liberty which God had granted unto them or which blessing God had sent upon the face of the land for the righteous sake. It's interesting to see the cunning devices that are used in our day and the flattering words that are used. To see videos and podcasts, memes and infographics, so-called whistleblowers trying to give the church a black eye. I would simply caution all of us to calm down, to not allow their sensationalism to prey off our emotion but to see past their cunning devices and their flattering words to what the real goal is here. So often they feign objectivity, and yet their objective is anything but objective. They want to at least change the church in ways that would effectively destroy it. No need for prophets and apostles when you have these so-called experts on the other side. And honestly, what makes them so difficult to defend against Go to chapter 47, verse 36, and see this detail. Now, these dissenters, and that's what we've been meeting all along, 
have the same instruction and the same information as the Nephites. They were instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord. It's what allows them to be so cunning and so flattering. They know just the right things to say. It's like Sharon back in Jacob 7, right? They had a perfect knowledge of all the language of the people that he could try to use their beliefs against them. It's interesting that Mormon would say in verse 36, it is strange to relate. I'm not sure if it's really that strange, to be honest. But strange or not, it's true that not long after their dissensions, they became more hardened and impenitent, more wild, wicked, and ferocious than the Lamanites had ever been. They were sinning against greater light and therefore were embracing even greater darkness. They were drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to indolence. That's the idleness slash idleness, I-D-O-L and I-D-L-E that always seem to go together in the Book of Mormon. All manner of lasciviousness, yea, entirely forgetting the Lord their God. And I would imagine this is an active forgetting rather than a passive slipping of the mind, a pushing down of the jack-in-the-box like we've talked about in other lessons. The third specific bad guy we meet comes in chapter 50, starting in verse 25 and going through about verse 36. So we only get to know him for about a page. His name is Morianton and, like the others, he was a Nephite originally. Initially, he seems less interested in power and more interested in property because when you first meet him, there's an argument over land between the people in the city of Lehi and the people in the city of Morianton. Verse 25, it says, there would have been peace among the people of Nephi, since it's Nephites on both sides of this line, had it not been for a contention which took place among them. So it starts with contention. A division opens up with argument on both sides. What was a contention in 25 becomes a warm contention in 26. Things are starting to heat up. The people of Morianton claim a part of the land of Lehi. It's like, we're all Nephites. Can't we just get along? Well, no, we, just, we want more. Whether or not I have enough is beside the point. I want more of what I have, and more of it than you, at least. Well, this warm contention leads to open violence. The people of Morianton take up arms against their brethren and are determined by the sword to slay them. Now, in 27, the people of Lehi appeal to Moroni for assistance. They're not in the wrong. And that's a good lesson for us to learn to seek the help of others when someone is attacking us for no reason. In 28, we learn that the people of Morianton were indeed led by a man named Morianton. And since he was worried about the army of Moroni coming after him, he decides to just pick up his people and run, figuring that if they could just go far enough north, they would leave Nephite territory entirely and be able to possess the land for themselves. Now in 30, we learn this other detail about Morianton. He was a man of much passion, and in one of those fits of passion, he became angry with one of his maidservants and fell upon her and beat her much. This is where antagonism becomes abusive. And that can happen spiritually speaking as well. I've talked with many who struggle with conversations with friends and family members who are attacking the church. And they sometimes feel like they're getting beat up on. I spoke with several in those situations just this week. People who have family members who just keep sending them anti-Mormon material. Well, just like the people of Lehi had gone for help against Morianton, well, this poor maid went for help as well. A victim of abuse, seeking assistance and protection. I think that's a very important example 
for anyone to follow who is in similar circumstances. You are not the guilty party. You deserve help. You deserve protection from your attackers. Whether that abuse is physical or sexual or spiritual or emotional, stand up for yourself. Get help. Not only is she able to find help, but she's able to offer it as well. Because as she reports this abuse to Moroni, she's also able to report the plan of Morianton and his people to escape. And in verse 32, Moroni recognizes, well, this would be a dangerous thing. It would lay a foundation for serious consequences, which would lead to the overthrow of their liberty. The biggest problem here is that Morianton and Lehi were on a line of defense those two cities of fellow Nephites should have been joining forces to push back Lamanites, not squabbling among themselves over territory. And now with one of these cities, let's just pick up and run. Well, there goes the fortification. There goes needed strength that could have been used to protect the people. Instead, they're leaving an open door for enemies to enter. You see how they're a little bit different than what we've seen already with Amalickiah or Zarahemna? Zarahemna and Amalickiah, it was open opposition, antagonism, attack. With Morianton, it's that second possibility, abandonment, and the church losing much-needed strength, all because power is being diverted to lesser things, materialistic things in this case. In verse 35, Teancum goes to head them off, meets the people of Morianton, but notice this phrase, so stubborn were the people of Morianton being inspired by his wickedness and his flattering words. There's that again. A battle commenced, and Teancum slew Morianton and defeated his army. Thankfully, in 36, the survivors were brought back. They covenanted to keep the peace, and therefore they're restored to the land of Morianton. A union takes place between them and the people of Lehi. They were restored to their lands too. But that whole episode could have been avoided if it weren't for division, contention, heating up into open opposition, pride and possessiveness leading them to abandon their post. I think it was Elder Maxwell who said that often it's not transgression, but rather distraction that pulls some people away. That seems to be the case with Morianton. The final group of bad guys we'll see today, you meet in chapter 51. And these are the king men. Pahoran is the new chief judge. He's taken the place of his father, Nephiha. We'll get to know Pahoran better next week. He's awesome. But these kingmen, it starts innocently enough, at least so it seems. In 51.1, there is peace in the land. But in verse 2, they did not long maintain an entire peace because contention arose. Again, this always seems to be the problem. Not outside attacks from Lamanites primarily, but rather dissension, division, contention from within. This contention had to do with the government. It says at the end of verse 2, there were a part of the people who desired that eh, a few particular points of the law should be altered. Now that is an understatement. Because what did they want to change? The entire form of government. Forget chief judges. We want a king again. And not the righteous kings that we had in Mosiah, Benjamin, and Mosiah. This was leaning more towards the wicked kings like Noah. So forget people answering for their own decisions which is why King Mosiah II ended the monarchy in the first place. Rather, we want somebody who can call the shots, especially if that somebody happens to be me. This is kind of like a Malachiah who wants to be a king, right? Well, these king men all have high hopes. 
They pretended to do it democratically early on. In verse 3, they send in petitions concerning the altering of the law. But as soon as it goes against them, we'll find out later, through due democratic process, they're angry with Pahoran in verse 4. They don't want him to be their chief judge anymore. So a warm dispute. Again, it's getting hotter here. Not yet bloodshed. It'll get there, though. Verse 5, those who were desirous that Pahoran should be dethroned from the judgment seat were called kingmen, for they were desirous that the law should be altered in a manner to overthrow the free government and to establish a king over the land. Yeah, a little bit bigger deal than, oh, a few particular points of the law should be altered. This is like America wanting to reverse the Revolutionary War. Verse 8, we learn this detail about the kingmen. Those who were in favor of kings were those of high birth, and they sought to be kings. And they were supported by those who sought power and authority over the people. So similar to what Amalekiah had been up to. Some have wondered, high birth? What criteria are they using? And some have suggested that these might be Mulekites. Remember the original settlers of the land of Zarahemla? When King Mosiah comes in with Nephites and finds there's already a people there? Well, Mulekites descended from King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah. They were from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of authority. The scepter shall not pass. The Nephites were descended from Joseph. Lehi was a Manassehite. And so you could kind of see why those in Zarahemla, if that's the case here, if these kingmen are from the tribe of Judah, they might feel that they were of higher birth, meant to be kings themselves. But whatever criteria they were using, they just wanted power and authority over the people. Again, vain ambition, as was normally the case. Important detail here comes in verse 9. This was a critical time for such contentions to be among the people of Nephi. Because what else is taking place simultaneously? Amalickiah is stirring up the hearts of the people of the Lamanites against the people of the Nephites. He's gathering together soldiers from all parts of the land. He's arming them. He's preparing them for war with all diligence. He's sworn to drink the blood of Moroni which will prove to be a rash decision on his part. You see the problem, though? Why so critical? We can't afford to have internal divisions when external enemies are marshalling their forces. What does the Lord tell the saints in Doctrine and Covenants 38? If ye are not one, ye are not mine. So what are we doing to build the unity within our wards and stakes, within our own families? We can't afford to be dealing with internal contention, dissension, when there are bigger problems to deal with. These are critical times indeed. And what's interesting is, as critical and as concerned as Moroni and the free men are, if you jump ahead to verse 13, when the king men find out that the Lamanites are on their way, they're thrilled about it. They are glad in their hearts. And what do they do? They refuse to take up arms. For they were so wroth with the chief judge and also with the people of liberty that they would not take up arms to defend their country. Now, this is not a noble pacifism. This is a hypocritical neutrality, a non-neutral neutrality. The whole reason they're withholding their arms is that because they want a certain side to win. They might as well join them. What's the old saying? All it takes for evil to conquer is for good people to do nothing. Well, these are not good people, but they will do nothing. Like I said earlier, it's one thing to be oppositional. That's Zarahemna and Amalekiah. Abandonment is another thing. There's Morianton. Let's just leave the whole thing entirely. 
But apathy, as we see in these kingmen, we're going to stay right here. We're not going anywhere, but we're not going to contribute. And as the Lord warned, if you're not for me, you're against me. He that gathereth not scattereth abroad. Now, this case seems definitely more political than religious. So be careful about drawing any parallels to what might be done in the church to deal with apathy. But politically speaking, during this time of war and insurrection, we're not talking about inactivity here. We're talking about treason. Martial law is declared. Due process is suspended. Treason becomes punishable by death. And Captain Moroni just fixes the problem. Doing nothing illegal, don't get me wrong, but taking political matters in hand in a way that no religious organization would do. His goals, though, are goals that we should share. Verse 16 and 17, it was his first care to put an end to such contentions and dissensions among the people. What are we doing to move in that direction? For behold, this had been hitherto a cause of all their destruction. Verse 17, it came to pass that Moroni commanded that his army should go against those king men to pull down their pride and their nobility, their so-called nobility, and level them with the earth, or they should take up arms and support the cause of liberty. What are we doing to level ourselves, to choose to be humble rather than be compelled to be, but to stay on the same level with our brothers and sisters? I honestly wonder, how many of those who are leaving the church have we driven out because of our own pride? Even the sense of spiritual superiority can lead to contention and dissension. Can we be more welcoming? Can we be more kind? Can we be more loving and understanding, especially with people who might be struggling or asking questions? That's not apostasy. But the way we react to those questions often pushes people in that direction. We have to be more careful. We need to be more open, more understanding, more empathetic. I just had a wonderful conversation just a few days ago with a man who's left the church and by his own description kind of likes to fight against it, at least likes to stir the pot somewhat with his family members and friends that are still members of the church. We had an amazing conversation though. And by the end, it really did feel like we were friends. I think he felt understood and felt validated in some of the concerns that he raised but also saw the value of laying down weapons, if not returning to the faith, at least having some kind of truce. I think both he and I left that conversation with a lot of hope, and I'm grateful for that. Now, like I said about this last example, it was definitely more political than religious, but especially among a people for whom politics and religion, there was a lot of overlap. Nephites primarily seemed to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Those that weren't, seemed very quickly to end up being some other form of ite, whether Amalekite or Amulonite or Zoramite, all of whom eventually got subsumed under the umbrella term Lamanite. So these were religious issues. In fact, if you go back to chapter 43, look at verse 10 and 11. When these battles first begin, what rankled Zarahemna and his kind so much? Verse 10, Whosoever should worship God in spirit and in truth, the true and the living God, the Lamanites would destroy. Verse 11, they knew the extreme hatred of the Lamanites towards their brethren, the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, people that literally would do absolutely nothing to harm them. But it was their faith that they found so unacceptable. 
How dare they worship God in spirit and in truth? What? Can't you just live and let live? Why does freedom of religion seem like too much to ask here? Well, it's like I said before. Religion is one of the few things that can honestly be a rival authority to the state. That's why when it comes to church and state, the state either wants to have an established church so that the state can be the dog that wags the religious tail and can use religion to further political purposes. That describes so much of the history of established churches. And if establishing the church isn't an option so you can control it, then you just need to eject the church entirely. Again, no rival authority. You see, churches, at least when they are living their religion, are one of the few groups that can speak truth to power, that they can call upon a higher power, invoke a higher authority, stand in the way of tyranny on one side or of relativism on the other. And in the case of dissenters, apostates, if I can destroy what I used to be a part of, it shows my ultimate victory over it, that it can't control me anymore. Or that's that whole blame side of things we saw with Korahor, accusing prophets of usurping power and authority, even when it's people like Zarahemna or Amalekiah that are doing the real usurping. As I've told a lot of people who have left the church or who have friends and family members who have, the fall from Eden usually has people looking back with one of two emotions. Either nostalgia, they look back thinking, I wish I still felt like I felt on my mission. I wish I still had faith. I can't unread or unsee those things that have shaken my faith. But oh, to be innocent and naive again, as they would probably say. If it's not nostalgia though, and that often doesn't last that long, then it's bitterness. And there's an anger there, as if Adam and Eve were looking back bitter that they'd been cast out of Eden. Almost cynical thing. How could God set us up for this with these seemingly contradictory commands? Oh, sure, and put cherubim and a flaming sword there to kind of mock us that you can't come home. Well, we've seen already that's not the purpose of cherubim and the flaming sword. But you see the bitterness that results. And how better to cope with those emotions than try to eliminate what once was. To whatever degree these things describe Zarahemna or Amalekiah or Morianton or the kingmen, it describes people fighting against the church now pretty well. Can I raise one caution when it comes to working with or associating with or still being friends and family with people who are fighting against the church? It hit me as I was studying the end of chapter 43, where Captain Moroni was fighting against the armies of Zarahemna. We'll see more of that when we look at the, the tactics of righteousness in a moment. But what ends up happening is Captain Moroni, through some military tactics, some strategy here, ends up being able to surround Zarahemna's forces. And once Zarahemna is trapped, his army fights like no army ever had. It says in chapter 43, verse 43, that the Lamanites did fight exceedingly. Yea, never had the Lamanites been known to fight with such exceedingly great strength and courage. Not from the beginning. Verse 44 says they fought like dragons with such strength and savagery that they could smite a helmet in half, pierce a breastplate. Now, part of that, I'm sure, was what it says at the beginning of 44. They were inspired by the Zoramites and the Amalekites. But I imagine that a lot of that inspiration was playing on the emotion of fear, 
of desperation because they were surrounded. They were trapped. There was no way out other than, as they saw it, to fight their way through. Pierced breastplates and cloven helmets all along the way. You see the same issue in verse 53 where the army is trapped. The men of Lehi on one side, the men of Moroni on the other. And when they saw that they were encircled about by the Nephites, they were struck with terror. Now, in this instance, Captain Moroni actually uses their terror to stop the fighting itself. Once they recognize they have no out, he offers them one, namely unconditional surrender. Lay down your weapons. Promise never to fight again. And you can go free. No prisoner of war camp. No post-war reparations. Complete forgiveness. What's my takeaway from that experience? I would simply say be very careful about leaving people who are struggling in their faith or even attacking the church, be careful about leaving them no options. Don't make them feel trapped with ultimatums or threats or whatever we tend to do to try to manipulate people into staying in the faith. Do you remember when the prodigal son demanded his inheritance from a father that he was treating as one dead? The father let him go knowing that if there ever was a return of the prodigal son, it would have to be the prodigal's choice to come home. Dad didn't bar the door, didn't trap the child, didn't leave him with no other options. He honored agency. In fact, treated the son with such respect and kindness, all while treating his own servants with such love and generosity that when the son finally came to himself and first thought of home, it came with welcome feelings. No slam door, no feeling of entrapment, simply a knowledge, a reassurance, a hope that he could come home after all. I think one of the interesting details here, and you see it frequently, that Captain Moroni's principal goal in all of these battles was to stop the fighting, to make sure they promised to maintain peace. The only reason I'm fighting is to stop people from fighting. I'm not forcing you to return to the faith. There's never been forced conversion in Nephite history. We will honor your religious freedom, but you have to honor ours. And I think that is a worthy goal, especially as we're talking with or working with people who are fighting the faith. Are our efforts to force them into the faith or back to the faith any better than their efforts to force people out of it? There needs to be agency, liberty, freedom on both sides. So for them, returning to the faith was secondary. I'm sure it was in the back of their mind. Ask Helaman, right? They're preaching the gospel throughout all of this. But from Moroni's perspective, our first goal is to get them to stop fighting. They'll never come back to church if the dukes are up the whole time. So perhaps the first order of business is to reassure them that they can lay down their swords because you're laying yours down as well. I'm not here to fight you. I won't force you to come in my direction. Please don't force me to come to yours. Let's agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. We don't have to see eye to eye on these issues, but can we at least see each other, the person behind those issues, the person that I care about, a person who matters to me? I'm sure there are so many other applications in these chapters, but that was one that struck me this week in studying. Seek peace before you seek reconciliation. Don't trap people or they'll just fight harder to escape. I'm not trying to critique Captain Moroni's military strategy. Militarily, he did some amazing things. 
surrounding the enemy is a good call when it comes to that. I just don't think it has the desired effects when we try to surround someone who's struggling in their faith, making them feel trapped within a wall of staunch believers. One more thing I do want to spend some time here, though. Go with me to chapter 47. And though we've spent at least a little bit of time with our four bad guys, Zerahemna, Amalekiah, Morianton, and the kingmen, chapter 47 allows us to snorkel, maybe even scuba dive here, to see some of the ways that these problems begin. Because at the beginning of chapter 47, Amalekiah is running from Moroni into the wilderness. He was unable to usurp power over the Nephites, and he's turned tail and run. But by the end of chapter 47, Amalekiah is the king of the Lamanites and ready to use his new army to take the battle back to the Nephites. How on earth did he get to that point? And I think sometimes if we're watching someone else's decline into apostasy or our own decline into spiritual destruction, there's some interesting principles here. Here's a few worth noting. In verse 1, Amalekiah takes his men and they go to the Lamanites and begin to stir them up to anger. It's one of the first things that people often tend to do. Try to invent some kind of danger. Make enemies out of what should have been friends. He convinces the king of the Lamanites, you've got to send a proclamation throughout all the land among all this people. So they'll gather themselves together again to go to battle against the Nephites. Tom Paine coined the word enemyship. And that's what he was trying to create with his pamphlet, Common Sense. We've got to get these colonists feeling like Americans instead of like Britons. We have to create an enemy here. And in a way, that's what Amalekiah is doing. Create threats where they don't exist. Create enemies when there are none. What are a bunch of peaceable disciples of Jesus Christ going to do against the Lamanites? Nothing. But let's plant some seeds of division and dispute. In verse 2, this puts the people in a bad place. They're afraid to displease the king who's commanding that they go off to war, but they're also afraid of going to battle against the Nephites, lest they lose their lives. Now, the bulk of them decide, I'd rather be in hot water with the king rather than on a battlefield against Captain Moroni. Probably a good choice, actually. But often, as people are trying to lead us away, they trap us between various emotions. They'll use fear or shame. They'll use peer pressure from one direction or perhaps a sense of self-preservation from the other. What's interesting is that in verse 3, the king is angry that they won't obey him. And so he sends Amalekiah with his loyal troops to go fight the others, which in verse 4 is exactly what Amalekiah was hoping for. He was a very subtle man to do evil. His plan all along was to dethrone the king of the Lamanites, and this is one of his first steps. If I can somehow drive a wedge between the leader and his people by making the king's command seem unpalatable to the people. Like this couldn't possibly be what we should do. I see that even today as people attack the church, trying to drive a wedge between the prophets and apostles and the members of the church, trying to say that they're out of touch or creating policies that harm people. We could spend a whole hour discussing the November 2015 policy and its aftermath and what some groups did to try to make that seem far more hostile or exclusionary than it was intended to be. Pitting profit against people is an old tactic. Amalekiah is trying to use it with the Lamanites. But we see an interesting thing unfold on the hill Oneida, where you have Amalekiah with these loyal troops against a man named Lahontai with all those who said, I do not want to have to fight. 
Now, ironically, Amalekai is sent out by the king to go force them to fight. But in verse 8, Amalekai's intention was never to give them battle, according to the commandments of the king. His only intention was to gain favor with the armies of the Lamanites. So how do I do this? I've got to get both groups on my side. It's amazing how he does it. Verse 9, he gets his army to pitch their tents in the valley which was near the Mount Antipas. So that's his first step. Let's, get, let's just get close. I think the adversary sometimes wants us to get close to the line, even though he might remain unsuccessful at getting us to cross it early on. Let's just get close. Verse 10, it, this all happens at night, and he sends a secret embassy. If he can convince us to take certain steps under cover of darkness or anonymity, we'll just keep these things secret. Nobody has to know what you're doing. And he sends this embassy up and asks Lahontai to come down to the foot of the mount. Come lower your standards. Come down to my level. Well, when Lahontai refuses to do so, Amalekai asks a second time and then a third time. He's persistent, as the adversary always is. And in fact, in verse 12, he says, fine, you don't have to come all the way down to my level. I'll come almost all the way up to yours. He went up unto the mount nearly to Lahontai's camp. And a fourth time, he says, come down. Just come down a little. You don't have to completely abandon your standards. Just lower them a touch. And in fact, as he says at the end of 12, bring your guards. I'll give you all kinds of assurances of safety. Nothing bad will happen here. Just come down a little bit and bring all the protection you want. Well, that was the one that finally convinced him. Verse 13, Lahontai comes down, he brings his guards, and Amalekiah makes him an offer he can't refuse. You don't want to fight us? Well, guess what? I don't want to fight you either. But we got to make this kind of look real, right? So why don't you have your men come down and surround us tonight? I'm basically handing over the keys to the army to you, Lahontai. You'll conquer us instead of us conquering you with no bloodshed. I get my men to surrender. And as those two armies become one, you can run the whole thing. I just ask that you let me be second in charge. Win-win. Well, only for a while. All of this goes according to plan. So by the end of verse 16, Amalekiah is second in charge of the Lamanite army. Now in verse 17, somewhat innocuously, we get to learn something about Lamanite culture. It says that it was the custom among the Lamanites, if their chief leader was killed, to appoint the second leader to be their chief leader. Huh. You think Amalekiah was aware of that? No doubt. And so in verse 18, he has one of his servants administer poison by degrees until Lahontai was dead. Now that is the phrase that describes this entire chapter. In fact, it describes the whole process of the adversary working in us of trying to create division and dissension within the church, or trying to plant seeds of doubt or of dissension within each of us. Poison by degrees. Promising protection. Persisting in temptation. Coming almost all the way up and asking them to just come a little bit down. Making promises that are too good to be true or offers that we just can't refuse. All of this is poison by degrees. Well, Lahontai is dead. And who's in charge now? Amalekiah, just as planned. And when he comes back to the city of Nephi to report mission accomplished to the king, it looks like he's done exactly as the king commanded. 
But when he sends his servants to the king in verse 22, and they bow themselves before him as if to reverence him because of his greatness, all these pretended emotions that are so often used. When the king raises them in 23 with a token of peace, they stab the king to the heart and he dies. The king's servants, alarmed by what just took place, flee. And the servants of Amalekiah use that as circumstantial evidence to suggest, see, they did it. It's so interesting to watch the guilty accuse the innocent of the very things those guilty parties have done. People seeking power, accusing prophets of being power hungry. People guilty of greed, accusing prophets and apostles of trying to get rich through the church. Seriously? Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Well, the flight of the faithful servants was enough evidence to convince the masses. Amalekai pretends to be angry, calls upon all those who love the king to go pursue after those servants, and the army tries to chase them down. Ironically, at the end of verse 29, those former Lamanite servants end up joining the people of Ammon. Yeah, that's a good people to hang out with. But by then, verse 30, Amalekiah, by his fraud, has gained the hearts of the people, pretending to be on their side, pretending to care about the things that they care about, pretending to give them what they want. He's gained their hearts. And thus, in 31, he takes possession of the city. He goes to meet the queen, lies to her in explaining her husband's death, brings the same servant who slew the king to give second false witness in blaming the servants who had fled. And verse 35 wraps it up. Amalekiah seeks the favor of the queen, takes her unto him to wife, and thus by his fraud and by the assistance of his cunning servants, he obtained the kingdom, which is what he had always wanted. He wanted to be a king. And now he is. He's conquered the Lamanites. Next step, let's conquer the Nephites too. Now we're just about done with the negative side of these four chapters watching what the opposition does to attack the people of God. But before we shift to Captain Moroni and the tactics of the righteous, can I point out just a few other details? If you look at chapter 48, verse 1, for example, once he's obtained the kingdom, Amalekiah tries to inspire the hearts of the Lamanites against the people of Nephi. How does he do it? By appointing people to speak unto the Lamanites from their towers against the Nephites. Sounds like the opposite of King Benjamin, right? Build a tower and speak to the people. Well, that's an important thing to realize is happening. Joseph Smith talked about a war of words and a tumult of opinions. He talked about the need on his part to disabuse the public mind, which suggests that it had been abused by those that were against him. Peter Berger, a well-known non-Latter-day Saint religious sociologist, has said that our realities hang by the thin thread of conversation. And here is a conversation that Amalickiah wants to keep going among the Lamanites. There has been opposition to the church from the very beginning. And so much of what people say to attack the church in 2020 are arguments that Alexander Campbell brought up in the 1830s, or that Eber D. Howe, or John C. Bennett, or Thomas Sharp, or T.B.H. Stenhouse, so many anti-Mormons or apostate members have been saying the same things for the last 200 years almost. But honestly, what I think has made attacks on the faith more prevalent and more powerful today than ever 
is because of the towers that are built so that people can speak from them and broadcast their doubts, their concerns, their questions, their complaints. You take someone with cunning devices and flattering words and a perfect knowledge of the language of the people, having received the same instruction as everyone in the church, and what do you end up with? Strong voices, convincing messages, persuasive rhetoric. All that we saw with Korahor and Sherem and Nehor, men and women up on their towers, broadcasting and blogging, posting and commenting, trying to inspire the hearts of people with fear or with shame, with confusion, with doubt, hoping to convince people to listen to them on their tower at the expense of prophets, watchmen on the tower of God. In chapter 48, verse 3, another detail worth noticing. He had hardened the hearts of the Lamanites and blinded their minds and stirred them up to anger. Again, seeking emotion, in this case anger, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's shame, but working on emotion in people. Often they claim to be aiming for the mind, and they do, with this doubt or this question, this piece of historical information. In fact, it's both body parts that they're after, to clog the channels that God typically uses. Remember section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenants, revelation comes to the mind and the heart. There is reason and rationality in religion too but it's not divorced from the feelings of the Spirit. Well, here he's trying to clog both channels. Like I said, he hardens the hearts and blinds the minds. If I can get you to feel certain things and think certain thoughts, then I can lead you astray. Two verses later, we see another detail that keeps coming up. 48 verse 5, he did appoint chief captains of the Zoramites, they being the most acquainted with the strength of the Nephites. We've got to get defectors, dissenters, people who know the enemy. They knew their places of resort and the weakest parts of their cities. Therefore, he appointed them to be chief captains over his armies. Again, the Lamanites always get the bad rap, but it's the Zoramites, the Amalekites, it's former Nephites that are the ones that are stirring people up, keeping alive old animosities, causing the kinds of problems that we see. Always seems to be those who are most acquainted with the church that can do the most damage to it by twisting what they once knew. One other thing worth pointing out, chapter 52, near the end of today's material, you meet another Zoramite. This one is named Jacob. And Jacob has taken possession of the city of Mulek. Moroni and Teancum want to take it back. And so having had a council of war, this is chapter 52, verse 20, they send an embassy to the army of the Lamanites and say, come out with your army so we can fight, man to man, army to army, here upon the plains. And yet at the end of 20, Jacob, who was a Zoramite, would not come out with his army to meet them upon the plains. What we learn in verse 21 describes anti-Mormon tactics to a T. Moroni, having no hopes of meeting them upon fair grounds, had to come up with a different plan. That plan, by the way, consisted of sending Tiancum and a small group of men almost as a decoy to get close to the city as if they were trying to do some kind of covert operation. Tiancum's really good at those, we'll, we'll find out. And when Jacob 
sees this small group thinking, ah, this is easy prey. They come rushing out. Teancum takes off as if retreating. And as Jacob's army stays in hot pursuit of them, Moroni's army can come out of hiding, take over this basically abandoned city, and then wait for Jacob's army to realize that this is not going to go according to plan and come back home. As they do so, Teancum's men, Lehi's men coming from that side, Moroni's men coming from the city they just took over, trap Jacob's men and are able to defeat that army. But you do learn two things about Jacob, a dissenting Zoramite who is trying to fight the people of God. Number one, you learn that he doesn't fight fairly. That's what we saw in verse 21. You've got no hope of meeting them upon fair grounds. Just know that going in. Satan doesn't fight fair and neither do his followers. And number two, Jacob was unwilling to go army to army But when he saw a small group, he thought, ah, there's easy pickings. And he went after them. So often these attacks, these spiritual attacks happen in isolation. It's like the anti-Mormon I've told you about before. I was sitting at lunch with him and he said, you know, I'm having a hard time saving Mormons from themselves. Do you have a list of inactives that I could use? There it is. I will not fight the whole army, but is there a small group? Someone at the edge of the herd that I could probably more easily pick off. Brothers and sisters, as Elder Maxwell has said, this is a real war with real casualties. And you and I know those casualties. There are friends. There are family members. We've served with them. We've lived with them. We love them. We have to do a better job of helping them home. But in the meantime, if they are still far from that moment of coming to themselves, we do have to be able to protect our faith. And fortify it. So be aware of the pride and possessiveness of others and the pride and possessiveness that sometimes begins to work within ourselves. Guard against opposition and abandonment and apathy, knowing that any of those things can begin to work in us little by little, poison by degrees. As we'll see in the next part, God does have a solution to all of these things. And they all proved that President Hinckley was right all along in what he said in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Our safety lies in our repentance. Our security lies in obedience to the commandments of God. That source of safety and security will become clear as we turn our attention now to the Nephites and what they're doing to win this war.